Support for Dr. GPCR and the Dr. GPCR podcast comes from AttilaForest.com, your primary business performance physician. If you're a business owner in need of help with taking your company to the next level, visit AttilaForest.com. You'll get a personalized, systematic, performance-oriented service to help you identify and implement solutions that fit your needs to achieve growth. Schedule your free consultation today. Hi there. I hope you are all staying safe and healthy during these unique times. I am your host, Dr. Yamina Bershish, founder of Dr. GPCR. In this episode, you'll meet my guest, Dr. Terry Hebert from McGill University. Originally, Terry wanted to be a microbiologist, but his research led him to work on a microbial toxin that acted on an ion channel in mammalian cells. That's when he became interested in membrane proteins, which ultimately led him to GPCRs. Today, Terry and his team use a collection of biosensors that light up like traffic lights to study the signaling of GPCRs in induced pluripotent stem cells. These stem cells can be differentiated in a variety of specialized cells to better reflect receptor function in the body as opposed to immortalized cell lines. Join me and find out more about Terry's favorite receptors and his work. Let's dive in. Terry, thank you for being here today. My pleasure, Yamina. You are currently a pharmacology professor at the Department of Pharmacology and Therapeutic at McGill. Can you tell us a little bit more about your background and how you got where you are today? Sure. I, I, I really didn't think I'd end up in a, in a pharmacology department. I, I, thought I, would be a, I thought I would be a microbiologist. That was my training. That was where my interest lay when I was a, when I was a young fella. And then I got, kind of got waylaid by a uh, by a microbial toxin that happened to act as a as an ion channel in in mammalian cells and that led me to become interested in membrane proteins generally and then more specifically in voltage and ligand gated ion channels and that sort of translated to an interest in gpcrs as 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 kind of a, another interesting class of membrane proteins and so uh, many years after that uh here i am Awesome, awesome. And you trained uh, in, in, as a postdoc in Michel Bouvier's lab. Where were you before that? Where did you uh, do your PhD? So I did my PhD at the University of Toronto, and I was studying uh, voltage-gated sodium channels. And, and so that movement from the channel world to the GPCR world was really um, not driven by any desire to work on GPCRs. It's just that I didn't want to leave where I was, and I stayed, I stayed in the city where I live. So uh, and just switched universities and, and, and then um, ended up working on GPCRs that way. Wow, interesting. Um, since you've been working in the GPCR field for quite some, some time now, do you have a favorite GPCR that you're, you could say that's your... Uh... Yeah, that was a hard one, but I think, I, think you know, I have to admit, despite the fact that I was trained, uh, you know, on beta-adrenergic receptors, that my favorite GPCR has to remain the angiotensin 1 receptor. Uh, I like that. I like that one a lot. Um, any particular reasons that you could share with us? I, th I think because it, it, it's, um, 
Well, I, I'm interested in its role in, in the cardiovascular system for sure. That's a that's a, a simple answer. But I think because it's such an interesting interacting protein, it is an interaction hub for many other GPCRs. It's coupled to many different signaling pathways, and it it remains, despite all we know about it, kind of a mystery because we're used to studying these things in isolation. And and I think that the more we think about them as as parts of networks, the, the more interesting they become, right? I think that that's still, for me, the the big question is how, how large are these networks downstream of a single GPCR? And for the angiotensin receptor, I think it's it's wired into everything. Wow. And what is what is the current status, the need to know information that's recent that has been recently published on the angiotensin receptors? Well, I think that many people have started to realize that, um, you know, despite this sort of almost obsessive focus on G protein versus beta arrestin, right? Like the, the, the primary downstream coupled G protein to a given receptor versus beta arrestin, while, while perhaps true uh, in some cases, like uh, opioid receptors, for example, where it's either or, um, or but for the angiotensin receptor, it's not just coupled to GQ or beta arrestin. It's coupled to GI. It seems to be coupled to G12. It's probably wired into other signaling networks. And and then when you build in this idea that these receptors interact with each other, that kind of adds another layer of complexity to the story. So I think what what we don't know is how much we don't know. Um, that that we know that 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 the AT1R interacts with a lot of different GPCRs. We know that it's wired into many different signaling pathways. But the biggest mystery for me um, is that we're still uh, kind of focused on what it does in the HEK293 cells. So that to me is the is the the kind of central thing now to to take all of the tools of modern pharmacology that we've built, but adapt them so that we can study these things in the, in a more relevant physiological context or or more importantly even a more relevant pathophysiological context has there been any evidence of differential signaling of AT1R receptor depending on the tissue that it is expressed in i think yes i mean if you if you look at what these things do in their native environment which is in the cardio cardiac myocyte or in the vascular smooth muscle cell they, they do do things that are distinct from what they do in a hex cell, right? A hex cell really kind of shows what's possible, uh, but it doesn't really show what's happening. And in, in our hands, um, we've built a particular type of biosensor which tracks receptor confirmation. And we can see that when we express those sensors in um, hex cells versus vascular smooth muscle cells, they give different outputs depending on uh, what ligand you you challenge the receptor with? So, cellular context to me seems like the uh, it's the elephant in the room for all of us, right? That we don't pay much attention to it. But I think if we're going to um, maintain uh, GPCRs as viable drug targets, we'd better start doing that. Absolutely, absolutely. And um, um, so you you had mentioned you had alluded to the bias signaling in the context of this angiotensin receptor or other GPCRs as well, where you have G protein signaling versus beta resin signaling, where on a, on a higher level, where do you see 
bias signaling playing a role in, in drug discovery? So uh, I think the, you know, the idea of bias signaling is, is a powerful one, but um, I'll give you two examples. Like, as I said, for the opioid receptor, it really does seem to be in some sense either or. Like the, the, uh, the G protein signaling drives the uh, analgesic, the, you know, the therapeutic aspects of it, whereas beta restin signaling seems to, in large measure, drive a number of the adverse consequences, although a paper came out last week saying that beta restin isn't responsible for all the adverse consequences. In the, in the case of the angiotensin receptor, um, you know, we, we kind of got tripped up by the simple dichotomy between GQ and beta arrestin. And um, the drug that was tested in clinical trials uh, failed. It didn't, meet, it didn't meet any of its primary endpoints. Now, I, I think that's probably for, for two reasons, if, if you're asking for a bigger picture view of what, what's going on. One is I think that the, uh, the, the bias or the signaling downstream of the angiotensin receptor that's actually you want to block in, in disease is, is the GQ. But the one that you want to preserve, the one that's cardioprotective, the one that may actually have some disease-modifying properties, I'm not sure that's just beta-arrestin, right? That was the hypothesis. But, but in a paper that um, we helped uh, Stéphane Laporte uh, and, and Michel Bouvier publish uh, um, in, this, in 2018, it kind of showed that the ligand that was just viewed as a pure beta-arrestin bias ligand and no GQ signaling, that part was true, but it also was true that those ligands activated GQ, activated GI. So I think we need to know kind of more of the molecular context and how it relates um, to disease. And, and I think if we're going to test these molecules as, as what they're designed to be, which I think is disease-modifying, disease we, we need to have, again, a, a, coming back to it, a more relevant physiological context in which to do that. I mean, I, I don't think the Trevena compound for, um, for, for, for the angiotensin receptor is a failure. I think it's, it's the starting point to think about a better, better version of the clinical trial. But the, the company, you know, for probably the reasons that made sense at the time, closed down the program. So, uh, but I think that bias is not a simple either or. It's a, it's, it has to be more nuanced, right? And so I think that if we don't study these things in the right cell type, uh, we're going to lose all of that nuance and it's going to lead us to failures. Do you, do you think um, we now have or, or we need more tools to be able to study the androgensin receptors, for example, in a more physiologically relevant setting? I think the tools are there. There's two types of tools that we've needed for a long time. One is the one that many GPCR people have invested in developing, which is, you know, um, signaling biosensors, conformational biosensors, way to track, uh, you know, in, in ways that are amenable to high throughput uh, screening. We have those biosensors, all the resonance energy-based biosensors, uh, FRET and BRET flavors, uh, lots of biosensors that are based on uh, the production of uh, second messengers. And, and um, we have those. And, but we've mostly been using them in hex cells. So the other tools that, that people have been developing, I think, are, are ways to get those biosensors into something like an induced pluripotent stem cell, where you could put the biosensors in, put them in a way that, that they're not interfering with the steminess of those cells, 
and then turn those stem cells into something else. And you could turn those stem cells into more than one something else, right? You could, you could actually make uh, cardiac fibroblasts. You could make cardiac myocytes. And then you could look at paracrine signaling between the, the, the cell types, you know, the way it actually happens in the heart. Um, studying cells in isolation uh, is not the best way forward anyway, but uh, using the wrong cell is definitely the wrong way forward. So I think that now uh, we have the possibility to put all of these really amazing tools that, that the field has developed into uh, a more relevant physiological setting, right? The, the stem cells not only can be generic in the sense that they come from uh, a human, but they can also come from patients now, right? So we can model, uh, we can model what's going on uh, in the patient context by, by using biosensor approaches or any other type of phenotypic drug discovery approaches in patient-derived stem cells. And, and, in, and in those cells differentiated into, into relevant target tissues. So I, I think we're at the early days of that, but I, I, I think that's the way forward. Absolutely. It's very important to have the right relevant cell, cellular background. Sometimes we spend too much time working on our hex cells and we cultivate them in these generated media, but we don't even know what exactly is in the media. And hex, tube of hex cell to tube of hex cell, there are variations. Well, we, we're, we're finding that out when we knock out G proteins in, in those um, ATK293 cells. It's, it's like we thought that would be a really simple way to a ask about the role of a particular G protein, but in the hex cell context anyway, we know now that those cells rewire. They rewire in ways that allow workarounds for missing a particular G protein, right? Because the receptors are coupled to so many different signaling pathways, they find workarounds to that, you know, so that the, the cell without that G protein is now intrinsically different than the cell with that G protein. And I think that that type of thinking makes me think we need to do it in the right cell type all the time. Absolutely, absolutely. And uh, are you currently working on using these biosensors in in more native-like uh, cellular environments in the lab? Hey everyone, just a quick thanks to our sponsor AttilaForest.com, your one-stop primary business performance physician. Get a free consultation today by visiting AttilaForest.com. Like what you hear so far? Make sure you never miss an episode by clicking the subscribe button now and visit us at drgpcr.com slash podcast. Also, your feedback is very important to us and we'd love to hear from you. Visit us at drgpcr.com to get in touch. Now back to my conversation with Terry. Yeah, so we've gone two routes. Um, one is that we're doing a lot more things in primary cells. So primary myocytes, primary fibroblasts to 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 um, to make sure that, that the context uh, uh, of our biosensor outputs is right. And we've also went, gone down the road now of, of, of slowly, uh, you know, retooling to become a, an IPSC lab, right? So we're now uh, growing and differentiating uh, human-induced pluripotent stem cells. We're starting to establish collaborations to get them from patients where we would um, look at uh, patients with both rare diseases and patients who have more common diseases like cardiomyopathies, which are all driven by different, um, different mechanisms, but 
all kind of are sensitive to the drugs we use to treat heart failure, right? But they're differentially sensitive. So how can we pick a therapeutic approach, you know, targeting the anti angiotensin 1 receptor system, targeting the alpha adrenergic system, targeting the beta adrenergic system? Now we have a way to test that in individual patients before we ever have to try it in the patients themselves. So I, I think that that's kind of where we're going. Absolutely. And um, in the same context, so now that you'll have the right tools, the right cellular context, um, are you going to plan on screening of libraries of compounds or how are you going to? Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm old. But, you know, I think that so there's not we can't do everything. Right. So I think that for us, the screens will be uh, either in collaboration with people who are set up to do larger, um, larger throughput screens. But for us, we're, we, we think that we have enough, like the angiotensin receptor is so interesting because there's enough chemistry around it um, that we already have a, a, a few dozen ligands that, that we can test pretty easily going forward. So um, whether we're going to do the, the high throughput screening, um, that will de depend on, uh, on, on funding, on collaborators. But the the medium throughput screening, yeah, we're gonna do it. And the and 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 in different cell types, I think that's that's what we're after. Like the 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 minimum number of molecules we would need to look at that would allow us to understand the role that cellular context plays in in determining what those ligands do. Fantastic. And um, so you're gonna be looking at cellular context, looking at multiple compounds. Are you also going to be looking at different signaling pathways in parallel? Well, I think that's where the toolkit's already built, right? So we we have we have the tools to look at um, a, a large amount of what's downstream of a G protein. Now, now that's not to say that we know um, when we move. The other concern about moving to these different cellular contexts is that maybe the signaling context is different there too. So that may tell us that we need to build an additional um, number of biosensors as we realize that while the, this G-protein coupled receptor in this cell is now wired into uh, a number of signaling pathways that we didn't know about before. But I, I think that the way, the way that, that problem is, is, uh, is pretty simple to solve. We've become pretty good at building biosensors for signaling pathways as we identify them. Um, but I think that the hard work will be in, in, in making sure that, that we, we get all of that in each relevant cellular context. And maybe it won't be so hard. Maybe we'll see pretty easily that um, a lot of the signaling is conserved as we move from one cell type to another. But but I think some of it is going to change. So I think it's important to to start looking outside of the hex cell. I I, I tend to agree with that. Um, what's your take on forming partnerships with pharma, for example, with Trevina or bigger companies that could help you with, you know, larger screens once you establish, um, you, once you have observations in these different models? Yeah. I, I mean, I think that if, if we're really going to, um, if we're really going to impact medicine, there has to be partnerships with pharma, right? So we have a, a small farm um, partnership with, Domain Therapeutics um, in our in our consortium for biosensor development, and they they are interested in moving beyond the ATK two nine three cells as well. And I think that you know I think it's the smaller um, pharma and the smaller biotech companies that really are going to be able to to kind of take the risk of 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 what we're doing and try to kind of build the tools to then 
scale up so that larger pharmaceutical companies can can engage right they're they're waiting to i think they're waiting for two things they're waiting for somebody to demonstrate that bias is an as a really actionable um property of gpcrs that can be exploited clinically and they're waiting for someone to show that there's a a, a way to model that in a in 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 in, in a simple um a simpler way that captures the complexity but captures it in a way that can be used for high throughput screening right so those are the challenges in in in, in attracting uh, pharma support i think that we're thinking small for the for the time being but i think regardless of whether the idea of bias loses loses some of its impact the idea of doing drug discovery in relevant cell types is still uh, i think an important um pursuit I, yeah, I I, totally, I absolutely agree with that. I think it's 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 kind of a step by step. The way I see it, a step by step event. If you can show it in the lab, you can show it in smaller biotech. Then you might be able to sell the idea to to bigger pharma, where most likely there is a more hierarchical system that takes more time to get through through these funnels. So I know that well. We've talked about it. GPCRs are complex. Just the ATL one receptor can signal through different signaling pathways by coupling to different partners. Given the complexity of, of GPCR signaling and their importance in physiological uh, settings, how what's your take on them on being a drug targets? We agree that they're good drug targets. We keep on showing these in, in PowerPoints, but where should we focus on GPCRs or should we focus on some other enzymes or some kinases that do other things in, in cancer cells, for example? You know, I think they remain tractable because they're expressed at the cell surface, uh, and and a lot of their downstream signaling machinery isn't. So uh, I think they're attractive for drug discovery in that sense. I also think that um, the low-hanging fruit has essentially been picked already, right? So what's left is the sort of complicated um, biology that that only kind of in situ drug discovery would allow us to do. So going back to uh, the physiological context is going to help us um, push things forward. I mean, uh, how many how many GPCRs are there that aren't in your nose? About 400. Um, we don't have drugs for um, a fair number of them, right? They remain orphans, or if not orphans, uh, undercharacterized because you know we can't get the information we need um, from the hexel. So I think that yes, they are definitely still still good drug targets, but but they 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 we're now at the stage where we need to make a kind of um, I won't say evolutionary, but 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 we we need to make a leap uh, away from the simple models and, and sort of embrace the complexity a bit more to get to get at the next generation of targets. And then the final thing I I have to say about that is that. Now we realize that they don't just signal at the cell surface, right? So is there a way to, uh, to drug receptors that are inside the cell, not just the ones that come in through endocytosis, which seem like a reasonable, uh, a, re a, a still tractable target, but what about the ones that show up in places like the nuclear membrane or the mitochondrial membrane? How, how, do, we, how do we get at those, right? So I think those are interesting drug targets too. And, one thing I've learned over the years is that chemists, chemists can make molecules that go anywhere and do anything. So it's just a matter of engaging um, pharma and, and in academic chemists in that regard to kind of think about uh, getting GPCRs where they live, uh, getting GPCRs how they live, and, and then not being focused so much on, on, on these simple uh, systems we've been using. 
Speaking of um, targeting GPCRs and accelerating uh, drug discovery, what's your take on using AI, artificial intelligence, and um, machine learning to accelerate the knowledge on and drug discovery targeting GPCRs? Yeah, I've been thinking a lot about that lately because I'm 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 actually teaching about um, AI and drug discovery, and uh, you know where where I th I think it has value. Um, is in exploring chemical space in the context of structures that we have now. Now, like since 2007, the number of GPCR structures has has literally exploded, right? I mean, uh, I mean, you you've seen on my Facebook page, I put up at least one or two new structures every every week, it seems. Um, so I think AI and and machine learning in general will kind of have a role in kind of identifying sites outside of the orthosteric binding site that might be targets for for, for for new drugs, right? We haven't had much luck um, finding allosteric uh, sites because they generally have lower affinities and we don't have a starting point of, of places to look because anywhere can be, anywhere on the receptor surface can be a site for an allosteric ligand or even uh, anywhere on an interacting protein could be a site for an allosteric ligand. I, I think AI will help us kind of um, find targets that we could approach in that sense. Um, beyond that, I don't think AI has much um, use in the drug discovery. Um, it's still a hard slog, right? Getting through, uh, you know, pharmacokinetics and then pharmacodynamics, you know, does the drug uh, get metabolized this way or that way? I, I think maybe um, down the road, it might have an impact there as well. But I I think there's still things we just have to do the old-fashioned way, empirically, and and uh, you know, in that hypothesis-driven way that 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 we do better than AI, but AI can do some things better than us in terms of speed and capacity. Definitely, and processing all that information that you're gonna acquire from those from those um, native-like cell cell lines. Yeah, that's absolutely right too. Yes. Great. Thank you so much. Um, so just to sum up, working on GPCRs is not easy. It's not ideal to do it in hex cells, but now we have many, many different biosensor tools that allow us to understand their function in a more physiological context. Uh, there is still a lot of work to do. What would be your advice to young scientists who want to study GPCRs? Well, don't don't be afraid of that complexity and, and, and don't be afraid of the... Uh, um you know, the fact that your mentors might, might be afraid of that complexity, right? I mean, uh, 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 my, own, my own road was, uh, you know, a totally um, serendipitous observation um, about proteins that interacted with GPCRs being other GPCRs, right? That, that we still struggle with that in the field. Are they, are they, are they real? Are they, are they stable? Are they... Are they um, just homo or just heterodimers, right? But I, I think that, you know, I, I kind of like the idea that that it was uh, scary to everyone else at the time, right? And uh, um, I, I think that 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 my own students have kind of had those those seren moments of serendipity where they they couldn't understand uh, what they thought was a negative control gone horribly wrong, right? And so you have to be open to uh, to discovery by being open to kind of being wrong. It sounds like an infinite game that's worth playing in that sense. Um, yeah. 
<laughs> we don't know very much. Uh, during your trajectory um, as a scientist, were there any aha moments when you, you realized, well, it, GBCRs are very interesting, but they're complex, and you've learned something that changed your perspective on them? I, I think, like, you know, the, the, the Dimer story was an aha moment, right? I mean, that, uh, that anyone was ever able to replicate that to me was... Oh, thank goodness. Right. I mean, because it was, it, we took a risk kind of thinking about, about them as dimers. Um, you know, th that was when I was a postdoc and, uh, as, as a PI, I've, I've had several, um, aha moments when we first realized that, you know, GPCRs weren't just going to the cell surface. I mean, I didn't have that idea f first, uh, that was, uh, you know, people like Sylvain Shemtab and Bruce Allen, they were thinking about that, uh, in a way that that really kind of transformed the field but we got into it our aha moment was realizing that we could actually drug them on the nuclear membrane right so we could build molecules that we could we could cage they could get across the cell membrane and then we could uncage them that that was really cool and related to that the i guess almost the biggest aha moment for me was not um because of a g protein coupled receptor it was more because of a G protein, when we realized that, or when we observed that, that G protein um, get into the nucleus, that G proteins interact with transcriptional regulators and, and that G proteins might actually be regulating uh, expression of genes in a way that's completely distinct from their normal function at the cell surface. So that, that, that's an that's a ongoing story in my lab. We're hoping to submit that in the next couple of weeks, but that, that's been a real eye opener as to, you know, how evolution uses different things for for different purposes right the the things that that they originally came into place for uh get sampled for many other functions and some of those functions get conserved and some of those functions get further modified to to serve di completely different roles than 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 what we're used to thinking of them, them doing so i guess those are the three dimers uh nuclear localization of GPCRs and the, the drug ability therein, and then, uh, you know, G proteins acting uh, as transcriptional regulators. That's fascinating. I can't wait to, to read that paper. Good luck with submitting it. Hopefully it'll, it'll go through uh, peer review pretty, pretty quickly. Yes, um, and, come and come back rejected, but, you know, I, I'd <laughs> but, but, but I'm ready for that too. <laughs> That's all that matters. As long as you're ready. I mean, you can only control so much. Having the right controls, having the right, uh, the right experiments done and, and the rest, you'll figure it out with, with time. Um, are there any conferences uh, around GBCRs that you think young students or young scientists should attend? You know, I, 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 my own uh, family situation has sort of limited my travel to meetings. And, and so uh, the, the one that I go to um, religiously every year is the Great Lakes GPCR retreat. It's small. It's cutting edge. It's a lot less expensive than, say, a Keystone meeting or, or, or a Gordon conference. But the quality of the science is, is equal to either of those. And so um, if, if I were to tell students from anywhere to go to a meeting, it, it would be to the GPCR retreat. Um, uh, you're going to meet uh, in, a, in a really informal setting uh, people who are, 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 are um, like the thought leaders and and in the field and and you and you meet them over beer and potato chips um what could be better 
absolutely. I've been at that meeting. It's like going home yeah. every, every year. Um, if you have any job openings for, for your lab to prefer people to join your team, where can they find these ads? Uh, I, I guess I, I thought about that question too. The easiest way to find me and to find out what I want and what I need is to look on my Facebook page, right? So the, the, the GPCR consortium page or, or my lab page, those, those, those kind of have a sense of what we're after and what we're interested in and where we're going. And, uh, I don't ever have a job opening in the sense that, um, you know, uh, I'm always waiting for somebody to ask me a question. Uh, you know, are you looking for volunteers? Are you looking for graduate students? Are you looking for postdocs? Um, I've kind of stopped looking because where I am at McGill University, we've been pretty lucky in the sense that we get a lot of interesting people coming through that I, I've, I don't usually have to advertise. Not, not that I'm so important that I don't have to advertise, but I get enough traffic just um, from teaching a lot and from going to the few meetings that I go to and from having an active social media presence that I think that um, that those are the places that, that I would look if you want to work in my lab. I would highly recommend both of both your Facebook pages and your Twitter accounts. Um, I think it's uh, it's up to date. Anyone who wants to know what's going on in the GPCR field, that's the place to go. Um, how did you come up with the idea of of having a Facebook page or um, you know putting together the GPCR consortium? Uh, yeah. So I I was not an early adopter of Facebook. I I got um, actually roped in by my wife to join Facebook because she sent me a link to look at some pictures she'd posted of my infant daughter on, on Facebook. And, and the only way I could see them, um, because she was out of town at the time was to become a member of Facebook. And what really made me think of using Facebook as a tool was initially because of teaching. And, and then I realized once I finally also not an early adopter, once I got a smartphone, I realized I could post things um, related to my lab all the time. And then I realized that not everyone was interested in all the other stuff that goes on my lab page. So I thought I would devote one just to GPCRs and, and, and G proteins and, and, and signaling. And that's how the GPCR consortium um, came, came to be. And I, and I realized the power of those networks in just kind of uh, kind of getting people to think about what I think is important is because a lot of people visit them and, 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 and I, I, I'm always struck by the fact that, you know, people still come to see it every day. And, and, but I, I think there's a real power in, in taking the few minutes to, uh, to post things every day. Absolutely agreed. I, I get, I only keep my Facebook account open because, because of your page. I can get my uh... <laughs> me, me too. <laughs> All right, thank you so much, Terry, for being here today. It was a great pleasure to be invited, Yamina, and uh, I really enjoyed our conversation. Thank you so much. Thank you. You've been listening to the Doctor GPCR podcast. Don't forget to subscribe, share, and like. Visit us at drgpcr.com/podcast to access this episode's transcript, find out more about Terry's work, and get in touch. Oh, and sign up for our monthly newsletter at drgpcr.com slash newsletter. I'm your host, Dr. Yamina Bershish. Thank you for listening, and until next time, stay safe. <laughs>